0: Are you glad you're here? Because you guys made it. I mean, it was cold out there, but you came anyway. It was two degrees when we started our last service. But you guys are the faithful. You came in, you made it. And now a bunch of people are watching online. But you guys are here. So good job. Yeah, we're glad that you are here. We are in a series called Luke, and we are looking, studying really the life of Jesus through the first century historian Luke and uh, who was a follower of Christ and we're excited to, to continue that. Now remember, we, we've covered some things already. Uh, in December, we were talking about how Luke told us about Jesus's birth in Bethlehem, how that kind of played out and then that there's not hardly anything, just one event from Jesus's childhood that we know of from the Gospels and that's when he was 12 you know, he was in the temple, his family and the caravan headed back to Nazareth, his hometown. But he, he stayed at the temple and his parents found him three days later. You know, we heard all that. And then nothing for 18 years. And then when, we, when he was 30, he came to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. John didn't want to do it. John knew Jesus and was like, really, you ought to be baptizing me kind of a deal. But Jesus says, no, we need to do this. And make it happen. And so he did. Then after that. Jesus was taken into the wilderness. Led into the wilderness. Where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He fasted during that time. We talked about that last Sunday. And so that was sort of what initiated his ministry. That fulfilled sort of the credentials of the Messiah. And then now Jesus starts his ministry. Remember Born in Bethlehem, but his hometown was Nazareth. And that's kind of the place where we're talking about today at this point in Jesus' life. Nazareth today is, I think, the largest town in northern Israel. It has about 78,000 people. Almost all of them are Arabic, and 70% of them are Muslim, and then 30% of them would consider themselves Christian. That's what's there. But, of course, back then... Nazareth was, was a very small place. And so as, as we figure all that out, we're going to look at what Scripture says, and we're doing this in Luke chapter 4. And so I invite you to turn there, because what happens is he starts his ministry in northern Israel in a region called Galilee. But then, right after he starts, early on in his ministry, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and he preaches a sermon there in his hometown synagogue. Now, this is very key. Didn't want to skip this because what Jesus says to his hometown people is key to understanding his mission and his ministry. And so we need to kind of dial in. It's critical that that we understand this. And so we're going to focus and we're we're going to catch it. And so um, get ready to do that. I remember... So this is going to be Jesus' first sermon in his hometown church, synagogue. I remember my first sermon at my home church in Pueblo, Colorado. I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was, I won't tell you about all the details. I mean, I was nervous. I was there. I think it was Thanksgiving. Uh, You know, I, it ruined my entire vacation because I was so nervous about getting ready for it. And then they had put like an ad in the paper. Hey, Kevin Pinkerton, some of you know him. He's going to be speaking. You know, so some, some friends, you know, came from high school and it was just, it was a bomb. It was awful. It was just terrible. Those poor people. I mean, I, I just, I, it was just, Bad. But I wasn't Jesus, so Jesus, we don't have that. Jesus actually has something he needs to communicate. He wants his friends and neighbors to get this, and uh, it's not a train wreck. So here, here's what we're doing. And again, Nazareth is small, so Jesus being from Nazareth, this is, this is small town stuff. First century Nazareth, is like 200 people. How many of you came from a small town? Yeah, okay, all right. 200 people, I mean, that's, a, and, and now they're hearing about Jesus, and so they're intrigued, you know, they want to know, you know, what is going on, I, I remember when Pam and I moved here from Virginia, we we were coming to, to take a position, was custodial and part-time assistant, it was actually assistant youth pastor, and we came, and did. but the only place we could find a house to rent was Lindsay, and there's the mayor of Lindsay right there. Okay, so yeah, so we're, we're, we were in Lindsay and people would say, well, where, where's your house at? I go, we got a house in Lindsay. They'd be like, Lindsay. Yeah, Lindsay. Lindsay, why so far away? Why in Lindsay? Why are you way out in Lindsay? I'm like, it's like 17 minutes from the church. I mean, it's not that far. I remember it was like, wow. I'll tell you one more thing. So when I was at Liberty in graduate school, I was from Colorado, went to Virginia, and then I met this guy and we had a weird connection. This uh, guy, he goes, oh, you're from Colorado. Well, do you know this guy? And I knew the guy. I mean, it's a whole state, right? He's like, do you know this guy? I know this guy. Turns out this guy I met at school was the brother, his brother, he was the best man of my best man's brother. I know this is weird. So it's just strange, but that's he's like, yeah, I know these people. How do you know them? Why is the best man at this guy's wedding? I go, well, that, the brother of that guy was the best man at my wedding, and I was the best man at his wedding. It's just weird, you know, just a weird coincidence. That happened. It, it's going to come up in a minute. But anyway, so when it was time to move, I go find this guy. I've been there for a while, and I haven't been connected to him. But, you know, I, I, I run into this guy, and I say, hey, hey, just to let you know, I'm going to be leaving in a week. You know, I'm, I'm going to this church in northwest Ohio. And he goes, where in Northwest Ohio? And I say, well, in Fremont, the church is in Fremont. And he goes, oh, is, is that where you're gonna live? And I go, no, I actually got a, a house in a town outside of Fremont, Ohio. And he goes, what town outside of Fremont, Ohio? And I say, Lindsay. And he says, I'm from Lindsay. <laughs> you know, so whatever, you know, that, that's kinda how the small town thing goes. You know, what are the odds? But uh, I've always remembered that. And sure enough, you know, that, that the brother of that guy was at this church, and he came here for a while while he lived in Clyde. But anyway, he, he's gone now. He moved away. But so anyway, so here, the, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And remember, Nazareth was not, it's a small town, and it's not well looked upon. There's another incident that you may remember in Scripture. It's recorded in John where Jesus is gathering some of his disciples, and Philip gets all pumped up. Wow, we found this guy's the Messiah. And he goes and tells his brother Nathan. And then when he tells Nathan, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And remember what Nathan said? Nazareth? What? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You gotta be kidding me. No way, Messiah's from Nazareth. That's kind of what's going on with this hometown thing. So now let's check out the record of Jesus's first and probably only sermon in his hometown. Now, he's already started his ministry after his baptism and temptation. That's in Galilee. That's all around this little bitty town of Nazareth. So they've all been hearing about Jesus and they know him. They grew up with him. You know, they remember him since he has moved out of Nazareth to Capernaum. But they all know him. They've known him for years. He's 30 years old. You know, they've known this guy and they're excited and they've heard all these amazing things that Jesus is doing. So it's like hometown, small town, boy makes it big, right? So they are buzzing. And then they hear Jesus is coming. So Jesus is coming back to his hometown Back to Nazareth. The whole town is buzzing. I mean, they're waiting. They've heard the stories. Wow, this this is a guy we know. This is gonna be, man, it's gonna be great to hear from him. Gonna be interesting what he says. And then he comes in and he preaches in the synagogue. And so here's how it goes. In Luke chapter four, verse 16, that's where we left off. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, we're going to go on with this story, but I just want to point out something. As was his custom, you know, Jesus did a bunch of teaching to multitudes outside that couldn't fit in any one place, right? But on Saturdays, the Sabbath, where was he? In church. I mean, and so for you guys, what? Well, I'm just, you know, I'm not saying I'm just saying Jesus would have been in church, but whatever, you know, go on. But, and so, He's, he's doing this, and this would have been a smaller synagogue, and it would have been packed out because people living around here, if they heard, everybody's packing in. Nobody from Nazareth's missing this. They're all here. It's, it's a very small synagogue. I say small, but it's not super tiny because in order to even have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men and their families a part of it. So that's the minimum. But, I mean, this day, everybody's packed in. He's back at the synagogue that he attended as a kid and they're happy to see him and they're sort of honoring him as a visiting rabbi. Verse 19, and the book or scroll, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now he's quoting, he's reading Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And poor means poor, but primarily poor means poor of spirit. And we find that out all through Jesus' ministry. So we're talking about the poor of spirit, although people sometimes use that to justify prosperity gospel and liberation theology. It's really poor in spirit, that's what he's talking about. Jesus continues, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops. Now, he stops because that would have been really significant. This is a messianic text. It's a text about the Messiah. As I've explained already, the messianic expectations are high. It's been hundreds of years since the last prophet. Now, John has showed up. Now, here's Jesus initiating his ministry and all this is happening. But as Jesus reads this well-known text about the Messiah, a text they all knew, he actually stops in the middle of the sentence. He says, that last part, did you catch it? He says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, they would have all noticed why you stop in there because the rest of that sentence would say, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he doesn't say in the day of vengeance. He just stops it. Which is really weird. It'd be like one of our uh, interns or one of our residents who were in seminary and then they came back and they were doing their first sermon up here. And then they said, well, to start our sermon, I'm gonna talk about the Lord's Prayer. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter six. I'm gonna start. And then he starts like this. Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and stop. And we're going, well, thy kingdom come, thy Why are you skipping the rest of that? You didn't, you didn't finish the sentence. What's going on? That's what they all knew this text. He stops before he's done. And he's leaving off that day of vengeance. And so why would he do that? Because they would have all noticed, why didn't you do the whole verse? The whole sentence. And here's why. Because he came to proclaim the favorable day of the Lord. He's there in grace. His first coming. That passage is about the Messiah. But then the Messiah also comes in vengeance. That's his second coming. And so that brings up something that happens in the Old Testament that caused a lot of confusion, especially during Jesus' day. And it caused them, a lot of times, to have wrong expectations of the Messiah. From the get-go, the Old Testament taught a couple of things that Jews had a hard time understanding. Number one, that he wasn't coming just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. But then also, that he was coming twice. They didn't understand that. But because the Bible talks about two different comings of Jesus... It's hard to mesh them all together because one prophecy will say that Jesus is coming as a humble servant. And then another prophecy will say he will rule with a rod of iron. And one prophecy will say, you know, he comes and he is tortured for us. And another prophecy will say, you know, he comes as a conquering hero. And you're going, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do we merge these? Well, the way you merge them is there's not just one coming. The Old Testament taught that Jesus, the Messiah, they didn't know his name then, that the Messiah would come, the Christ would come, and then he would be cut off, Daniel chapter 9, and then he would reappear. And so he would come, he would be cut off, he wouldn't be there, and then he would come back again. That's what the Old Testament taught. But at this time, in the first century Judaism, they didn't look at it that way. They had kind of merged all the prophecies about the Messiah into one coming. A way to explain it would be like this. If you're traveling out west, and then you're, you're on a road and you see a mountain range. We have a picture of that. You know, you're traveling along, you see a mountain range in the distance. And, it, and if you haven't been in the mountains a lot, you look at that mountain range, and you feel like you could just drive up to the bottom of that, park your car, and hike all day or two days or whatever it would take, and go up to the peak... And then you would see everything. I mean, it would be right there and then you'd be, kind of look over the other side. But if you've been to the mountains, it's not like that, right? I mean, when you go up there and climb up in there and you start looking around, you don't just see flat land on the other side. You see this. Just mountains and mountains and mountains. And just getting up to that peak, you're going through through a whole bunch of mountains that you couldn't you didn't notice. So here here's the deal. Here's the analogy. When the Old Testament prophets were talking about the coming Messiah, they just saw him as one mountain range. There he is, he shows up, and then that's it. But what they don't know is, what they can't see is he comes, and then there's a valley and another mountain range when he comes again, but they couldn't see that from where they were standing. They didn't understand that. So first century Judaism they're thinking Messiah is just coming once, and they can't figure out how this is all going to work together. But they really, they don't really like the suffering Messiah part, but they love the conquering Messiah part because Rome is dominating them, and they're waiting for Messiah to come and wipe them out. I mean, basically is what's going on. So that's what, that's what they thought. But here Jesus only reads the first part. And it's because his first coming, he did not come to bring judgment this time. That's what he's saying. That's why he splits the verse right down the middle, right in the middle of sentence. So then, verse 20. So he stops mid sentence of a verse they all knew. He closes the scroll. And verse 20 says, and he closed the book or the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So can you imagine it? He's there, synagogue, reads Isaiah. He ends in a part they all know, but he stops short of the end. He just stops mid-sentence, rolls it back up, hands it to the attendant, and then he sits down. Sitting down was the posture for teaching. So he's read the the Bible reading. Now he's going to preach. So everybody's laser focused. They don't really understand why they didn't read the whole verse. But this is their hometown boy. Now he's going to talk about the text. He's going to preach. And, and, you know, I'm a preacher. So like other preachers, this is really intriguing to me because I study sermons, right? I want to know how sermons work, you know, what text people use, how they unfold that text, You know, how do they illustrate that teaching, how long the sermon is, you know, all this stuff I want to know. So then I decided, you know, I need to do this with Jesus' sermon. So one thing that I sometimes struggle with is timing. So I thought, I'm going to time Jesus' sermon here. So I'm going to speak what his sermon is and time it. So I did that. I did that yesterday or two days ago. No, yesterday I did. I timed it. And here's how it timed out. 4.5 seconds. 4.5 4.5 seconds, that's a sermon. Obviously, I got a lot of work to do. If you, if you, if you thought maybe he had a, a, a dramatic pause in there, which he could have, okay, 5.5. You know, but whatever, I'm way off, right? And so here's what's happening. Jesus is getting ready. Here's his sermon. He sits down and he began to say to them, this is the sermon part. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the sermon. Today, this scripture I just read in Isaiah has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom! And they're all going, Whoa, whoa. After centuries of waiting, after generations and generations of praying, he's here for the Messiah. He says, I'm here. This text is about the Messiah. Here I am. You're looking at him. And they're all like, Whoa. What? Huh? And, and they're kind of they're, they're freaking out a little bit. They don't know exactly how to respond to that. There's no jumping for joy. They're kind of perplexed. They don't seem to know how to respond. So, next verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? You know, mixed reaction. You know, it's, it's like they appreciate what he's saying about the Messiah. You know, they're like, you nailed it, Jesus. Great text. Yeah, the Messiah. Yeah. That's who we're waiting for. I, I don't know why you left off the best part, but man, you, 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 yeah, we're with you on the whole Messiah deal. They're excited. We're with you. They're, wow, great. But then it's like, well, well, well yeah, great text, but h- hang on. Were you implying that you... We're we know you. We know your parents. What would your dad, Joseph, think if he was still alive? You know, hold it. You're saying you're the guy? And then, hey, you know, that was a good sermon, but if you're saying you're the guy, whoa, how do we know that? I mean, you're not special. You didn't go to seminary. What, what, what? How can you say that? And so Jesus knows they're not quite getting it. And so he explains this sermon. You know, he, and no doubt his old neighbors, his friends, in the synagogue thing, they're basically saying, hey, here's what they're thinking. If you're saying you're the Messiah, well, we've known you all your life. You're going to have to prove it. How do we know? You're going to have to show us your stuff. We've heard some stuff. Don't get us wrong that. You've done this and you've done that. We need to see that, because we know you the best. You should be showing us what you got. But before, that's what they're thinking, but before they can even get that completely out, Jesus says this, verse 23. And so he, Jesus, said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Hey guys, no doubt you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And what they're saying is, what Jesus is saying, no doubt you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. That's a way of saying, show me your stuff. You say you can heal other people, let me see it in your life. Show me, prove it to me, prove, prove to me who you are. And he really explains that in the very next phrase here. Whatever, so you're going to say, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. That's what they're thinking. Jesus tells them that. And he said, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So it's just a little saying. It's kind of like we have the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, no prophet's welcome in his hometown. And he remi- And so then Jesus, after kind of confronting him, yeah, you probably won't accept me, he shares two Old Testament stories that they would know super well. He doesn't even share the whole story. He just talks about, he just refers to them. And one's about the prophet Elijah, and one's about a prophet that replaced him named Elisha. And these happen, that would have been hundreds of years before Jesus, but they know the story because it's in their Bible, which is the Old Testament, so they know all about this stuff. Here's what Jesus says next, verse 25. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows. This is him explaining what he's saying. I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So, Snapshot back in the past, hundreds of years before this, they all know this story. The northern kingdom called the kingdom of Israel has a bad king, all their kings were bad, that bad king and they drifted away from God and God's judging them with three and a half years of famine and everybody's suffering, especially people that live on the margins in the first century, that would include widows. And so Jesus is pointing this out. Yeah, remember, but there was a prophet, Elijah and one widow was spared suffering. But she wasn't a Jewish widow. She lived in Sidon in the town of She was a Gentile lady. And God took care of her through Elijah. And they're not liking this story so much. Oh, God didn't take care of his own people. God took care of this Gentile. And then to make sure they get the point, Jesus tells them a similar story with the next prophet, Elijah's replacement, Elisha. And that story goes like this. The northern kingdom is at war with basically Syria, and they're fighting, and they're kind of getting dominated a little bit. They're not doing so well, but they're also in rebellion against God. Well, there's a guy that lived in Syria. His name was Naaman. Naaman. He was a great man, he was a rich man, he was like the general of the army of Syria. Not the king, but the general, but he had it made. He was a wealthy man, considered a valiant man, but he had leprosy. And so he's got a death sentence, it's terrible, and he knows he's going to die. But there, in his household is a, a slave girl from, that was Jewish. On one of his raids, he gets a slave girl and uses her to take care of his wife. So his wife has this servant girl who's Jewish, and the servant girl tells the wife, you know, if Naaman would go to this prophet named Elisha, Elisha could heal him of his leprosy. Now, we don't know where she got that because he didn't heal anybody else of leprosy, but she just knew this man of God could do anything. He could help your husband. He could help Naaman, the head of our house. And so that's told to Naaman. Naaman decides he's going to go and check it out. What does he have to lose? So he goes to his king and he gets a letter of introduction to the Israel king to say, hey, we're not at war right now. Let me introduce to you Naaman. He's a great general, good guy. I need to make sure that you get him healed of leprosy down there. Well, the Israel king reads that and he's like, what? What's this guy trying to pick a fight? Nobody can heal anybody of leprosy. This is nuts. Hey, everybody, check this out. This guy, he's getting ready to invade us. He's trying to pick a fight. He's trying to come up with a reason. What's going on here? And he is in distress. And Elisha, the prophet, hears about it. And Elisha sends word to the palace, hey, send Naaman to me. I'll take care of this. So Naaman gets his whole entourage. He's carrying 150 pounds of gold. He's carrying more than that of silver changes of clothes, he's got a whole entourage, he has chariots, and they all wheel up to Elisha's little hut that he lives in somewhere in the middle of Samaria. And they all roll up, and Elisha's people come in and say, hey, Elisha, Naaman's here. Man, there's a bunch of people out here, and they all want to see you, and this guy's like a king or something, general. And, And then Elisha says, oh, 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 he's here? Yeah, just go tell him to dip in the Jordan seven times. Elisha doesn't even go out and meet the guy. So the guy goes out and says, Elisha says, go dip in the Jordan 7. Naaman is outraged. What? Go, go, go dip in a muddy river. There are better rivers in Syria than here in the Jordan. What, the guy's not gonna even come out and meet me? He's not gonna look at my case, figure out where the leprosy is, say a few things, pray, do something? He's just sending me, and he... he could have just wiped them all out, but instead he leaves ticked off. And as he's leaving, they're heading back to Syria. One of his servants says to him, you know, Naaman, if this guy would have told you to climb the highest mountain, you would have done it. If this guy would have told you to to swim by yourself across the Sea of Galilee, you would have done it. But he says dip in the river seven times and you're mad. Maybe you should try it. And so they haven't left yet, so Naaman's, he goes over to the Jordan, takes his whole entourage, he dips seven times, boom, no leprosy. So he's so freaked out, he goes back to Elisha and says, hey, it worked, here, here, take this gold, take this silver, you know, I want to reward you, thank you very much. And Elisha says, no, I don't want anything. And he's like, what? what?" And so he ends up taking some dirt, because he says, I'm never going to worship any other god but Yahweh. And so he leaves. And so now Jesus is talking about this. So here's how he says it. As he continues here, he um, he says, verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And the people in the synagogue at Nazareth, they're hearing this. They didn't like the first story, they don't like the second story even more. I mean, they're like, okay. Because they're getting, hey, you're, we're the closest to you. We should have first dibs on you. But you're telling these stories where not only not us, but all of Israel doesn't get first dibs on God. You're telling us two stories where when people of Israel were suffering, you actually blessed people who were Gentiles and they became followers of you. We don't like this. Messiah is supposed to come and wipe out Rome. And you're telling us he's coming for everybody to help everybody. And so they don't want Messiah helping their enemies. They don't like this teaching. They get that Jesus is alluding to, the, hey, Gentiles are going to be in, included in who the Messiah helps. And Israel's still going to be judged. You know, that's kind of the story. And so the people respond with rejection. You see, they they failed to remember that in the Old Testament teaching, from the get-go, when God blessed Abraham, later when he blessed his son Isaac, both of those times he said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Not just Jewish people, not just the chosen people, but also the whole world and it's like at this time, the Jewish people have kind of forgotten that because they're under oppression in Rome. They don't like it, so they're not emphasizing that. And so these are basically who we would call good moral people of Nazareth, but they're actually offended by the good news. They're offended by the gospel. They're offended that God's going to come and offer salvation to everybody. And they don't like that. And really, the same thing happens today. You see, today, even some religious people are actually offended by the gospel. Because here's, here's the way religious people think. I'm going to be religious, and I believe in Jesus, I like Jesus. And I'm going to do whatever the religion says, I'm going to do a bunch of good stuff. You know, I'm going to take communion. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to church every Sunday unless it's two degrees and I'll watch it on TV. You know, know, but I'll I'll do all this stuff. But what happens is they're thinking, if I do all this stuff, the religious stuff, then God owes me. So I can feel good about doing all this religious stuff because then God owes me then. Because I'm a good guy. I've I've been following him. God never owes us. And there's no good thing out of all the good. and, And taking communion and getting baptized if you're a believer, that's a good thing. But there's no good thing that we can do that can erase one of our sins. And our sin is such an affront to God. It's so vile, so evil, especially in the sight of a holy and righteous God, that our sin deserves eternal punishment. Eternal punishment, never-ending punishment is the right consequence for my sin and your sin. But this also is offensive to people in our culture. When you say, even to religious people or non-religious people, when you say, you're wrong. There's different ways you approach it. If you say, hey, everybody sins. They go, yeah, everybody sins. Nobody's perfect. I get it. But when you tell somebody, no, what I'm saying is the decisions you've made to sin, the things that you've done in your life, a holy and righteous, perfect judge would say that deserves eternal punishment separated from God in a place called hell that never ends. That's what you deserve. That's offensive. That's offensive. That's why when I say that, I usually start out by saying, that's what I deserve. And you do too. That's what God's telling us. That's what Jesus is teaching here. We all need God's grace. And the only thing we need to receive God's grace is need. You know, we have to know that we have a need. We have to know that we're helpless without it. We have to know that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to help us. It's just that. And so they respond badly. Verse 28 continues, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. Rage. After the two stories. Hey, remember Elijah and the widow? Remember Elisha and Naaman? They're They're mad. They're filled with rage as they heard these things. And what are they raging about? They're in a rage because the Gentiles can receive the grace of God too when a Messiah comes. They don't like it. Verse 29. And they got up and they drove him out of the city. They escorted him out of the synagogue through the city. They led him up to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to execute him on the spot. And the last verse says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, we don't know if that was a miracle thing or he just stared them down or whatever, but he leaves. They can't, they can't throw him off the cliff. And here's the problem. Most people today think they can be sort of neutral on Jesus by neutral, is here's what people in our culture say. I like Jesus. They say, I like Jesus. I'm good with Jesus. But when they're saying that, they've usually, they don't know much about Jesus, and they've kind of interpreted Jesus the way they like to think of Jesus. Yeah, I think Jesus was cool. I think Jesus would have, you know, he would have kind of liked me. You know, I'm not perfect, but I think Jesus would like, yeah. And, and yeah, I'm good with Jesus. But they have no intention of submitting their life to Jesus. What Jesus says, how we should live. So they're good with Jesus. But they don't want to follow Jesus, not seriously. And so they think they can be kind of neutral on Jesus. Nobody can be neutral on Jesus. Either you recognize him, who he is, God in human flesh, who drastically offered up his own life and died to pay for our sins. He had none of his own to pay for our sins to make a way that we could be forgiven but our sins could still be punished and thus satisfy God's wrath, satisfy perfect judgment. But we can only get that through belief. You cannot be neutral on Jesus. You have to be all in. It's Jesus and only Jesus. John starts his gospel. In John 1.12, it's almost like the key verse for the entire gospel. It says this. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Who gets that right? To as many as received him even to those who believe in his name. We have to receive Jesus for who he is, the Messiah, the God-man who died for our sins. If we receive Jesus, we, have, we become the, the children of God. And how do we do that? Through belief, through trusting that Jesus was who he said he was and still is. And what he did, he died on the cross to pay for our sins so we wouldn't have to. But we only get that credited to our account through faith, through belief, through trusting in him. That's the most important decision anybody can ever make. And so we're going to close a little different. We're not going to have a song. I'm just going to dismiss in prayer in just a minute. But before I do that, I just want to challenge you a little bit. Have you received Jesus? This whole story, his hometown rejected him. Not only that, they were so mad they wanted to kill him. They didn't like his message. They didn't like we all need grace. Have you come to a point in your life where you've received Jesus through belief, through faith? Because that's the most important decision you'll ever make. And so if you're fuzzy on that, if you question that, if you're not sure, you need to nail that down. When, after I pray, room one, which is that room that you can see right there, pastors will be there, and just come. And if you have questions, if you're not sure about some stuff, if it's not nailed down, come and ask the question. We're all friends here. It's okay. Just come and ask the question, and we'll try to answer any question you have. But don't ignore it. Don't try to be neutral. Don't try to just go on with your life and live your own way because that will lead you to separation from God forever. Because when he comes back in judgment, there's no second chances. And we don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know how long this valley's going to last. So time is of the essence. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and Lord, we've looked back through communion on what Christ has done for us on the cross and we've been looking back at his first, maybe only sermon in his hometown. Now that wasn't received well. Father, we pray that all of us here would receive that message, that we would receive Jesus. All of us. And those of us that have already come to this point that we're trusting in you, Lord, we're all praying right now that that our friends and neighbors and people that we know who are here standing with us that haven't come to that point, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would touch their heart, that you would help them to see, that you would help them get their questions answered, whatever they need to take that step and put their faith only in your son, Jesus. God, move in our hearts and help those of us who are believers, and, and it's only by grace We don't deserve it. Lord, help us to keep proclaiming your message to the people we care about all around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.